If you want to turn in your Bibles this morning, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 55, um, continuing our series on that chapter, and talking about seeking God and how we do that this morning. And I might be dating myself a little here with this opening illustration, um, especially if you were in the military, but we used to have these things in the military called lister bags. A lister bag was a 36 gallon hanging water container that we would fill our canteens from. And at least when I was in, they were um, ran through a purification process that seemed to involve putting an Olympic-sized swimming pool amount of chlorine into those things. I mean, it was so bad that you could barely even drink it. It would burn the back of your throat on the way down and give you a serious case of rot gut. And the lister bags are all over the place. And we would try to treat it with Crystal Light or Gatorade packets, and nothing would help. It was just horrible water. And it was uh, such an example of something that was supposed to bring refreshment, but instead just gave you a horrible experience in trying to um, drink that water. And I use that this morning. Because in the military, to me, what a lister bag was, was an example of something that looks good and it looks refreshing, but in the end, it proves to be anything but that. And last week, we talked about Isaiah 55, 1 through 3, and how God wants to be the one who quenches every thirst that we have in life. And unfortunately, we don't really see that today. Today, many people, even Christians, have forsaken this whole idea of God being the source of all, um, all the thirsts or all the hungers that we have. And instead, we've gone and tried to drink and eat from other sources. Instead of seeking God, the source of living water, we go to the world for our nourishment. In essence, it almost seems... Like the devil has set up lister bags for us, hanging everywhere. They're really easy to get to. Everybody uses them. They're quick. They're easy. And we've even created a society where no one will judge you if you use one. For some, maybe your lister bag is alcohol or other drugs, things that are meant to numb pain, elevate mood, or simply help you forget the crushing anxiety that you might feel every day. For others, your lister bag might be sex or sexual sin. Maybe it's an inappropriate relationship or hidden internet identity. Your biggest fear in life is thinking somebody might hack your phone or, or look at your search history in your browser. For others, maybe your thing that brings you pleasure instead of God, it might be work. It might be being a workaholic, always being there, always trying to, to get ahead in life. For other people, maybe your thing is, is trying to have other people think good of you or think you're popular or, or you're an influencer. For others, it might be just a smartphone and the different apps that you find on that. The point is, is that the devil has a substitute for you. He has, if you will, a lister bag for you to try to get you to drink out of his way instead of going to God. 
And that's pretty much it for the introduction. I'm not going to spend a long time with that. I want to drive right into the scripture. And that's found in Isaiah chapter 55, starting in verse 6, which says, Seek the Lord while he may be found, and call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. And to our God he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And Father, I ask, Lord, that you just take this message today and use it to help examine our own spirits, our own souls, our own motives, our own actions, Lord. Father God, I ask, Father, that you just teach us to seek you and you alone for all comfort, all joy, all fulfillment in this life. Father God, I thank you, and I ask, Father, that you just help us to give our best attention to your word this morning. In your name, amen. Now, before we get any further into this message, I have to to address one quick thing this morning. The first thing is, this may be a rough message for some people, so strap in, but it's going to be the Word of God. The second thing I want to talk about is I received some feedback within the last year from various people. Um, Some people email into the church, some people call me, some people who have left have let me know that They think that when I'm writing my sermons, I'm sitting in my office thinking of them and how I can get them from the pulpit. How I can point out something in their life that that pokes them and and, uh, doesn't mean anything for anyone else. There are some people who accuse me of using this time in the service to attack other people because somehow I know their individual sin and spend time harping on it from up here. And I want to quickly address this because it does matter a little bit for today's message. I am not sitting outside your window at night with a penalty flag ready to throw and yell penalty and sin. I have better things to do. I'm not somehow tapped into your cell phones, your internet, your entertainment. I'm not following you around. And if I did know of a sin that you were involved with, I would speak to you directly about it. Or I would simply pray and let Jesus figure it out. I've always found in life that if I pray and let Jesus figure it out, that's always the best solution. Let Jesus be the one that that cleans you up. My job is to catch, his job is to clean. And the sermons that I bring, more often than not, I'm preaching to myself as well as you. As the words sometimes are leaving my mouth, I feel my inner man saying, John, you're doing the exact same thing you're yelling at them for. So I am no better than any of you who are in this congregation. I have my own stuff. John Calvin once said, if a preacher isn't first preaching to himself the sermon he is bringing, it is better for him to trip on the way up to the pulpit and break his neck than to utter one word of that sermon. And that's always the the heart that I come and I preach to you. Actually, sometimes 
I even edit my sermons on the fly. Sometimes I'll see a new person come in here that I know is struggling with something, and I happen to have it in the sermon that Sunday. I may, as I'm speaking up here, my eyes are going up and down trying to, to, so I know where I'm going. I might skip over a spot not to offend that person and maybe speak to them quietly about it. So sometimes if you see me pause, it might be because of that. So I'm trying to wrap my brain around to bring it out and uh, come back to that later. And finally, remember, I am but a poor vessel that God's grace sometimes uses to, uses to bring truths to your attention. That means, if those truths that I speak sting sometimes, that's a good thing. It's a good thing. It may not seem like a good thing, but it is. It means that the Holy Spirit is prodding you through the Word of God. It also indicates that your heart is still tender enough to feel that prod. And if that is the case, you need to allow the Holy Spirit to lovingly cut that thing out and remove it so it doesn't harm you. I'd remind you of Hebrews 4.12 that says that the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates to the dividing of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Definitely not me. I don't have any power in my voice to do that. So if you feel a sting, ask God to reveal to you why. So back to our regularly scheduled sermon. It all matters because of what we will be discussing next. In modern Christianity, we have a very unique dichotomy that we are seeing. And I'm going to illustrate it this way. Imagine that you're at work. And you get into an argument with your very best friend at work. It turns out your very best friend was teasing you in a way that is very sensitive to you. It's a way you just don't want to be teased. And they keep going and going and going. And finally, you draw them aside and say, hey, look. You know, we're, 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 we're friends, and I'm a little sensitive about that subject. Would you mind not just keep bringing it up and, and making people laugh at me about it? And your friend, you know, they got carried away. They profusely apologize, and they say, I'm so sorry. Let me, I'm going to go get you your favorite cup of coffee just to make up for it. And they bring you your favorite cup of coffee. Everything seems fine. Then Monday morning comes around, and you walk into the break room, and your friend immediately starts making fun of you, even worse. Even making fun of you for, making for you being upset about them making fun of you. Making everyone laugh really hard at your expense. Now what would you think about their initial apology? It didn't mean anything, right? I mean, you, you wouldn't think of them, they're really not your friend. Today we're going to look at that in regard of how we live our life before God. And I'm afraid that many of us living here in 2023 have bought into the lie of forgiveness without repentance. In verse 6 of Isaiah 55, it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. And I want you to see something in these verses of the Bible. 
there's a conditional phrase here. In other words, if you want this, or if you do this, God does that type of a, of a situation here. And both sides of these equations have to be met. And you say, well, what is that condition? Well, our scripture here has a few layers of it. The first one is seek the Lord while he may be found. Earlier I mentioned that if you find something offensive in the word of God or something that has said it in a sermon, you should rejoice in that and not feel angry. It means that your heart is still sensitive enough to feel pain. Let me illustrate a little bit what I was talking about. When I was growing up in the 70s, school playgrounds had just about every single one of them I ever saw had monkey bars in them. Anybody know what monkey bars are? Big metal structures that you'd hang from, climb, and now that we're so safe, apparently kids can't use them anymore. But yeah, we used, to, we used to climb all over these monkey bars. It was my favorite part of recess. I'd be on those things until the bell rang. And even past the bell rang, they'd have to come out and get me sometimes. I was having so much fun swinging on the monkey bars, climbing to the top and sliding on the pole all the way down. Well, I noticed one time, I think I was probably, I don't know, fifth, maybe fourth, fifth grade. We'd just come back from summer vacation. I got on the monkey bars at, at recess and my hands were starting to get a little sore. And then I got on at lunch, and my hands got really, really sore. And I'm like, why are my hands so sore? And I go in, and they're kind of red and, and just achy and all that. And my teacher said, well, you haven't had monkey bars to swing on all summer. You haven't developed your calluses yet. And I'm like, well, what is a callus? What, what is that? He goes, she said, callus is just part of your body's way of responding so it doesn't get hurt. It develops a hard part of your skin, and then you don't even feel it anymore. And she demonstrated She had some calluses on her hand. She took a pin and poked right through that callus and said, it's just dead skin. It's just a pad to make sure you don't hurt the skin underneath. And so what I learned is that a, a callus is simply a protective layer that is built up that has no life in it at all. It's all dead skin. So watch this. The same thing happens to our hearts. The same thing happens to our minds and emotions when we drink from that lister bag of Satan's deceptions for too long. It creates a callus around our heart and our spirit to the point of not even being able to feel shame or guilt about the things that God has said no to. It's a very, very dangerous place to be spiritually. Because the thing is, the more you do that thing, the bigger the callus gets. It gets so bad that nothing can penetrate it. And that's why God says to seek him while he may be found. Because if you let that sin callus grow for too long, it can permanently keep you from even wanting to seek God. God is always wanting to be found by us, but it's a matter if we're willing to seek him. And that callous will keep us from doing that. And that's not only true in our personal spiritual lives, but in our church, in our nation, in our culture as well. We were just talking in Sunday school this morning. Look how just in the last two years, some of the stuff we never thought people could believe in, they're believing in now. It's just we're on a break. It's, it feels like we're just 
all jumping out of the same aircraft at the same time with no parachute, thinking everything's going to be okay. But history, just history, shows us that that is not true. So let me show you this. I'm going to read a section of scripture that we often use at prayer meetings. And I want to see if you can spot the conditional phrase in it. And it comes from 2 Chronicles 7.14, which says, If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will come and heal their land. Now, since a nation is made up of individuals, these conditions apply to us personally as well. What is a condition required for God to hear us and heal us either on a personal level or heal us as a nation or, or as a human species? What is the condition? What well, starts out in the first word, if. If you have your Bible open, you should circle that word. If my people who are called by my name. There's a decision point there. What do they have to do? They have to humble themselves. They have to say, I am not the authority here, God, you are. Then they have to pray. Then they have to seek his face. And, underlying this, turn from their wicked ways. In my humble opinion, and I'm preaching, this is, one of those uh, things I was talking about at the beginning of the message where I'm preaching to myself as well. In my humble opinion, we as God's people in 2023, we've all drank from Satan's lister bag in some fashion. We all probably have areas of our lives that have been poisoned by him. It may be through an outright sin or a hidden sin. Maybe it's trusting politicians to save us instead of God. Maybe you struggle with pride or any other idol that you've unconsciously or consciously placed in your life. And what we've done is that we have forgotten that repentance is the key and the condition for forgiveness and healing in our lives. And that's why we aren't seeing it in our church and in our land. Going back to Isaiah 55, that conditional promise that says, Let the wicked forsake, forsake meaning repent, his way, and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him, and to our God, for he will freely pardon. And God has been just hammering in my own personal prayer time, my own time spent with him. He's been hammering me with this truth lately is that we need to relearn the spiritual discipline of repentance. The idea of repentance is to return. Return to the correct path that God has for us. It's to admit to, admit to God that, Lord, I know I'm rebelling against you. Lord, I know I took a wrong turn. I know you I took a path you told me not to take. I admit I was wrong, you are right. Let me return to you now. What repentance is not is jumping off the bad trail on Sunday morning and then back onto it at noon when we dismiss. And I'm afraid too many in the American church do just that. And if we continue to do that, 
We're never going to see God's wonders in the church. We're never going to see healings like the Bible describes. And we'll never again see him move in revival. If we allow it to continue in our personal, spiritual lives, we could even backslide to the point of not even recognizing Jesus anymore. What the Bible calls losing our salvation. There's something about sin. You can't play with it. I mean, would you play Russian roulette with a, with, if you had 10 syringes, one of them contains cancer? Would you play Russian roulette and just eject yourself and, and hope you don't get it? But that's what sin is. It's a metastatic cancer. It doesn't stay in one spot. And not only does it affect you, but if you're in a family or a peer group, your sin will influence them to do the same. It spreads. And I know it's hard to listen to. I know, I know it's, it's, it's hard to, to hear this. But we really need Jesus to explore our hearts, our minds, and our spirits and teach us how to repent again. And I've sat where you're sitting, listening to sermons like this one, and thinking, especially when I was a newer Christian, I don't know if I believe with all that. Well, that comes to our second part of our scripture from Isaiah. God kind of has a, not kind of, he does have it, but in a worldly way of saying it, this is God's view of the situation. It's his way or the highway. He gets to be God, you don't. And he says in verse 8, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now most of us think we're fairly smart. What I found in being a perpetual student my entire life, it seems, is that the more initials a person has behind their name, indicating their educational prowess, the more arrogant and dismissive they become of any idea that is not theirs. And when we talk about our thoughts concerning God's and his ways and how we might disagree with him about his laws or morals or his character, we fail on two fronts. The first front is no matter how smart or how educated or how well-read you think you might be, you got nothing on God. You're like a young child who just learned how to count to five on his fingers, arguing calculus to a Harvard math professor. I know that's hard to stomach. It hits us in our pride, but it's the truth. You see, God has three divine attributes, things that make God God and you not God. I call them the three omnis. Omni means all-encompassing. The first one is omnipresent. means that he exists everywhere at the same time. And by the way, part of God being omnipresent means he exists throughout the entire thing we call time at the same time. You wonder how 2,000 years ago he could be talking about what's going on today? It's because he was already here. He already exists here. Same reason he could um, prophesy through Isaiah and, and the prophets about the coming Messiah because he was already there. He already existed then. He could write prophecy very easily because 
He had already ordained it to happen. So thinking you can win an argument with him is kind of dumb because he already knows what argument you're going to bring. Even before you start to think and form the thought. The second omni is that God is omnipotent or omnipotent, meaning he is all-powerful at all times. The third omni is God is omniscience. We pronounce it as omniscient. Science is simply a word meaning knowledge. He has all knowledge. So there's no argument you can form, no critique you can level, and no logical case that you can bring that can defeat him. There simply isn't. And because of those three omnis, God's moral character then is perfect. Many unbelieving people have a huge problem with God as portrayed in the Old Testament. It's that I can't believe in a God that would wipe out a whole city or, or crush an entire nation and, and then kill an entire planet and only leave seven people behind. I can't believe in a God like that. He's not moral. He's a genocidal maniac. All those things that they, they say against God. Well, here's the thing. Because of those three divine attributes we talked about, God knows the outcome of every decision that could ever be made. He knows just how far down the, in the depths of depravity humanity can go. And in those situations where he had to wipe out a city or a people, he knew they were a cancer. And you don't pet a cancer, you don't feed a cancer, you don't give a cancer more time. You cut it out and you kill it. And sometimes that's what he had to do to save the rest of humanity. See, God knows everything that is knowable. And therefore, he created his moral laws with that in mind. And that's why the Bible gives us these moral laws. It's a symbol of his love. We think he's being a killjoy. We think he's trying to, to keep us from having fun in life. But he gave us these moral laws as guideposts when he said, Thou shall, and roadblocks when he says, Thou shalt not, to make sure we stay on the right path, to make sure we live a life filled with happiness and joy. So can we accept this truth that God's thoughts are higher than ours? He may be just a tad bit smarter than the rest of us. Can we say he is God and I am not? Therefore we can trust him because he knows all and wants what is best for all of us. Acknowledging this fact should make repentance that much easier for us. God, that's really what it is. Acknowledging God and saying, God, you are right, I was wrong. Give me the strength to turn from that sin. Not just averting my eyes for a little while so I can get through church on Sunday and then go back and look at it later, but getting off that path that leads toward that sin altogether. Finally, I want to leave you with this solid biblical fact about life. The Bible is very, very clear. Without repentance, there is no forgiveness. Let me say that again. Without repentance, there is no forgiveness. You might get a temporary relief of guilt for a time, but if you do not honestly repent and turn from wicked ways, 
All you're doing is adding to that callous. All you're doing is drawing further and further away from God until eventually you won't be able to see him, feel him, or even want him anymore. And that is grieving the Holy Spirit, what Jesus talked about. The Bible says it like this in Hebrews 10, 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. That's why the Bible has these conditions in them. If my people, if my people will humble themselves, if my people will pray, if my people will turn from their wicked ways. Let's all rise. Father God, it's my prayer this morning that we take the truth of your word and apply it immediately to all areas of our lives. Some of us may have, as I have in the past, been looking at my watch saying, oh gosh, get me out of here. This is too hard. Okay, I won't do it anymore, but knowing secretly that we will. Father, destroy that in our hearts. Destroy secret and hidden sin in our lives. Lord Jesus, I ask, Lord, that you strip away the calluses that have formed around our hearts, our souls, and our spirits. Reveal the tender flesh underneath so that you can build upon a firm foundation that is found only in you. While he was here on this earth, Jesus and the apostles who came after him repeatedly said, that he who stands firm to the end will be saved. The devil is doing everything in his power in our time to wear us out, to make us turn, to keep us from the things of God.